0: Thank you. of both magic and misfortune on soccer's biggest stage Real Madrid were once again crowned the champions of Europe but the news cycle it seems has already moved on to the future of their biggest players Liverpool meanwhile it seems are quickly plotting their revenge my name is Mitchell Tierney you are listening to the footy talks podcast and on this week's edition we're going to talk about the aftermath of the Champions League final we'll look at Toronto FC who are now a third of the way through their season and more ahead on another packed edition here to discuss all of this with me for the, is a first-time guest on the show it is 680 news soccer reporter Michael leach Michael thanks for joining me
1: thanks very much for having me Mitchell
0: Well, we will start in Kiev, uh, where after breaking down pretty much every aspect of the final between Liverpool and Real Madrid, the game itself turned out to be absolutely nothing like what we were expecting. Um, I was part of a pre-game panel uh, at the rec room as part of Footy Talk's live viewing party for the game. It was a fantastic venue and a really great atmosphere with the fans from both clubs. Um, And a lot of that panel, basically, we discussed the tactical battle between these two teams, how Real Madrid would deal with the high press. Well, a lot of that went out the window pretty quickly, and what we were left with was uh, a very bizarre game of soccer, but also certainly a very memorable final with Real lifting their third straight Champions League trophy. Uh, Before we dive a little bit deeper into the game, Michael, uh, what was your biggest takeaway from the 2018 final?
1: Well, I think the biggest takeaway, and I think the thing that people will remember for years to come... Long after we've forgotten the score, long after we've forgotten who scored the goals, mm. it'll be how those goals were scored and yeah. just the uh, the goalkeeping mistakes by by Loris uh, Karius for for Liverpool. It's uh, you got to feel for the guy. Um, you you have to feel for him on the biggest stage. This wasn't uh, you know this wasn't a, a league game in in the middle of November. You know on a Wednesday night against. A bottom feeding team. This was the Champions League final, the biggest stage, the whole world watching, and you know those two blunders that he made. I, I you know, you don't want to you don't want to say that a, one player cost his team the game, but two goals was the difference, and it was two terrible goalkeeping mistakes that were made by uh, by Carius. Uh, certainly, he has to wear. The lion's share of the blame for that loss
0: and we we knew the game was going to be a little different certainly than what we were expecting um you know minutes in 25 minutes into the first half of course when uh, Mohamed Salah was forced off due to injury uh, an ugly tackle from Sergio Ramos some kind of judo flip which uh, apparently the the European uh, judo association has come out and said that's actually an illegal move even in judo so um, <laughs> you know ugly stuff there from Ramos and um, you know Salah's World Cup now is in doubt uh, that was the moment where it kind of felt like initially we were going to be robbed of the game we all wanted to watch.
1: Yeah, certainly and I mean Ramos has a reputation for for some interesting antics and, and maybe if he doesn't he does. have that if if he doesn't have that reputation maybe we're not we're not talking so much about it but but mm. certainly Liverpool controlled that game for the first 20 25 minutes. And we're very much on the front foot. I do feel that Real Madrid would have found their way into the game eventually. But certainly the Salah injury it certainly had a massive impact on, on the rest of the game. Because it really felt like Liverpool very much lost its teeth, for lack of maybe a better phrase, after Salah left that game you know uh, the impact uh, of losing a player of that caliber is is unbelievable you know immeasurable completely immeasurable and what it means now for Salah obviously you have to feel horrible for the guy knowing that his world cup is now in jeopardy and it's it's mm-hmm. obviously not good for him and it's not good for Egypt going into Russia uh, next month or in or later later in June obviously it's it's a very tough situation Uh, But as far as the final went, uh, definitely it had a huge, huge impact on, on how the rest of that game played out.
0: Even with Salah coming off, though, Liverpool, you know, they were able to, to get the game to 1-1. They, um, you know, they, they didn't look too bad. I think uh, I think even that, that first uh, Real goal, as much as it was definitely ugly and, um, you know, a difficult goal to concede, it seemed to kind of wake them up. They looked pretty good in the stages after that, but... Um, you, you, you have to wonder how much the depth changes this game because you know obviously Adam Alana comes on for for Salah and that's certainly not a like for like swap and then at the same time you know uh, Real Madrid there it's 1-1 they can bring off Isco and bring on Gareth Bale um and we all saw you know he's he's probably a top 10 player in world soccer and they could bring him off the bench and we all saw you know the difference that made in this game yeah
1: the i mean the, the depth difference between the two clubs is let's, let's you know, start and end the conversation with Real Madrid has a player of Gareth Bale's caliber who can come off the bench. And that, that really puts an end to the conversation there because he starts basically at any other club in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For Real Madrid to have that kind of weapon coming off the bench, Liverpool's a good team. But when you've got that kind of player um, substituting into the game and, and coming on with fresh legs in the second half, uh, that, that takes you from good, far beyond good, to great.
0: Yeah, it does, and you know Gareth Bale immediately after coming on scores one of the better goals, maybe the best goal ever in a Champions League final. An unbelievable overhead kick. Um, you can ask our our colleague Oliver Platt. My jaw didn't close for about two minutes after that goal went in um, when we were watching the game. It was it was just a stunning strike, um, and you know just just a goal that um, as much as you know I. I think we will remember this in many ways as the Carrius final. I've kind of ordered things like this because I, in many ways, I do hope that this Gareth Bale goal goes down in history because it definitely deserves to, um, considering the effort he put in.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, your jaw dropped. And I, I think I fell out of my chair <laughs> and, and and was just absolutely it was absolutely astounding. Uh, it has to be certainly considered goal of the year to this point. I don't know. Mm. It's gonna be very hard to top that. Uh, we might get some magic at the World Cup. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, that that was a. As, as you said, you don't want this thing to maybe be remembered as the Carius final. And if you're looking for one moment that would take it beyond, and that was the winning goal, that would take it beyond the 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 Loris Carius thing. Certainly, you would look to Gareth Bale's goal because it was absolute magic. Uh, it reminded me of Wayne Rooney at Old Trafford against Manchester City a, a, a few years ago. Uh, just that kind of goal. He went over to the corner flag, outstretched his arms. Um, it, it very much had that same sort of uh, wonder for me. It, 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 that, that's the reason why we watch this game is for moments like that where you just you, you watch and you say, how did that happen? How did he do that? Just just absolutely an incredible goal and one that I I certainly I do hope is remembered as we as we move forward uh, from this game.
0: wasn't even that great of a cross either either. and he just was able to somehow get his timing so perfectly to direct that ball into the top corner Um, but now let's let's talk about the big one, Uh, of course the two goals sandwiching uh, Bale's wonder goal and uh, they've quite rightly been of course as you said pinned on uh, Loris Karius, Uh, a couple of brainless mistakes honestly and I I agree with Jurgen Klopp when he says the third one um, was a result of the first one where carries his confidence and goalkeepers sometimes are kind of like strikers where it's a confidence game um and when they're not on their game then stuff like that third goal can happen where um they look to punch a ball and then catch a ball and then they're not really sure what they're going to do and it just bounces off their hands um you know that it's it was so hard to watch Carrius after that match. It was, it was honestly one of the most heartbreaking or more heartbreaking things. And there was a couple of those in this game, evidently Salah having to come off and even Carvajal having to come off, but just watching Carrius walk around the field and uh, apologize to all the Liverpool faithful and kind of be left out on his own by his teammates was just heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. It was actually only the Real Madrid players that came over really to console him after that game. And Mm. I don't know what this means for him going forward. I, I can't see him being welcomed back at Anfield. Uh, you know, you'll never walk alone, but I, I feel like Loris Karius is going to walk alone after <laughs> this game. And, and again, you don't want to... It's a 90-minute game, and two moments shouldn't make that much difference. But unfortunately, in this case, it does. So I don't know what this means for his career, where he goes from here. I can't see him being back at the highest levels because it will, always, it will always haunt him. I think regardless of where he plays from here on, those two goals will haunt him for the rest of his life. And that's part of the cruelty of the game is that for as much as it is, there's 22 men on the field for 90 minutes – one, one player in a couple of moments can have such a huge, huge impact. And it's, it's the beauty of the game, but also the cruelty of it that Carius uh, that is now going to have to carry around with him uh, for the rest of his career, probably for the rest of his life. I mean, who knows whether he'll make it back to a Champions League final. And uh, this one opportunity obviously was uh, blown for him.
0: There's apparently a Serie C club in in Italy that's offered a loan deal for Carrius to, <laughs> um, which is just a, a mean trolling move. They haven't. They said they weren't even offering him the starters job. So you know this is going to go on for a while, and it's not going to be a fun summer for uh, Loris Carrius. Now, Real Madrid, as as I mentioned off the top, this is their third straight Champions League uh, win. Uh, you know, and they have four of the last five what makes this interesting for me and as we look at the legacy of this team is you can't really point to uh and i don't know i can't at least point to something that where they've really you know revolutionized the game like some of the truly special sides we've talked about uh in world soccer you know other than just buying a bunch of stars and kind of putting them together on the field they've won three straight champions leagues but if you're looking at a common thread for me, that's, that's the big one is they just, they just win and they do that because they have this incredible roster of players.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're a dynasty in Europe and as you say, it's largely because they've gone out and simply gotten the best talent and they have you know one of, if not the best player in the world, one of the two or three best players in the world and that makes a huge difference and they have such a deep lineup as we talked about a couple of minutes ago they're an incredible team and and certainly they're a dynasty in Europe they're probably the best club in the world i i can't see anybody <laughs> uh, you know on a single day beating them uh obviously strange things can happen but there aren't too many teams that that are that are going to beat real madrid um you know certainly in an international competition yeah they they simply put they're the best club in the world right now and uh, until someone comes and takes that UEFA Champions League throne, or maybe the club World Cup from them. I think it's more likely that it, you know, the UEFA Champions League is where they're <laughs> going to get knocked down. But until someone comes and takes that crown from them, they uh, they, they simply are the best.
0: And in terms of interesting legacy, uh, the, the same can kind of be said for Coach Zinedine Zidane, a man who, um, I mean, in terms of the most successful soccer man, period, he's won about... You know, everything there is to win, he's won it multiple times. Uh, You know, first three years as a coach, uh, head coach, and he only goes and wins the Champions League every time. Um, There's questions about, you know, how good of a manager he is, um, which, you know, I I think honestly just have to be put to bed considering the success he's had.
1: There are always these questions that come up surrounding the managers or coaches of great teams, particularly of dynasty teams. And it reminds me a lot of, say, the Phil Jackson effect in the NBA. Hmm. Phil Jackson has both hands full of rings. And people say, well, yeah, but he wasn't a great coach because he always had players like Michael Jordan or Shaquille O'Neal or Kobe Bryant. And the same could be said of Zinedine Zidane. The issue that I have with that is when you get to the highest levels, there's only so much teaching that takes place at that top club level. What it becomes at that point is about managing the egos. And we know mm-hmm. that Real Madrid team, that, that, that change room is full of egos, large egos. And to be able to get those egos to all work together for the greater good of winning trophies is not as easy as it seems. So I don't want to call Zidane the Zen master like (laughs) Phil Jackson has been called, but he has certainly mastered the art of getting those big-name, big-ego players to work together and has uh, obviously had massive success um, managing that club.
0: Yeah as you said I think I think you're right it's the uh, the respect he's been able to uh, inspire from his players and you know Gareth Bale was on the bench and we haven't heard nearly as much about that as you would think you would with a player of his quality um there hasn't been you know all that many all that much complaining and he did a role off the bench during this game so um the respect he's been able to inspire has been incredible now that being said um certainly after the game the spotlight got pulled in a hundred different directions um away from real madrid's uh lifting of the trophy after you know gareth bale kind of mulling over his future with Real Madrid and I think quite fairly mulling over his future considering, um, you know, how things have gone this past season. The same being done of Cristiano Ronaldo who did not have a great Champions League final. Um, Kind of trying to put some of the spotlight on himself maybe saying, uh, you know, talking about his Real Madrid career in the past tense. Uh, They launched their new kit for this next upcoming season and, you, you know, as much as you want to read into this Gareth Bale was front and center of that kit launch and Cristiano Ronaldo wasn't even involved. So um, definitely some interesting uh, takeaways from after this match with Real.
1: Yeah, I mean, as far as Cristiano Ronaldo's future goes with with Real Madrid, I think there's a lot of posturing that goes on. And I think, again, egos get involved and and that sort of thing. I really don't see him leaving Real Madrid at this Mm. point in time. I can't see him anywhere else other than the uh, Santiago Bernabeu. And, and a lot of that has to do with his contract. He's being paid in the neighborhood of $50 million a year. And that contract runs through 2021. That kind of contract is, is prohibitive for a lot of clubs. So again, other than him deciding that he wants to take a pay cut to move somewhere else that maybe suits him or his family more really see him again at, uh, you know back at, at Real Madrid, as for Gareth Bale, on the other hand, some of the comments that he made talking about uh, being unhappy, uh, coming off the bench and believing that he is a starter every week, and he absolutely is. He has that mm-hmm. talent. We know that. We saw that in that final. He put on quite the showcase, because even this, you know the first goal is a wonder goal that he scores the bicycle kick. Hmm. The second goal, yeah, Carrius blows it, completely misplays it, but that was a pretty solid strike that he took. Uh, Got to think that Gareth Bale is deserving of a starting job next year somewhere. Will it be in the Premier League? I have to think that there will be some Premier League teams lining up for him. And one might might actually be his old club at Tottenham, uh, where they're opening a new stadium and, and – um, he's hugely popular uh, there. So I, I would think that maybe he, he can find a home in the Premier League. But again, it's going to cost a lot of money and, mm-hmm. and you have to find a place for him. So there's any number of places that he could go. I just don't see him back at Madrid, certainly if he's not happy with the playing time. Unless there's some sort of commitment to him that he will start next year. I think he's gone. I think he's I think he's probably out of Spain altogether.
0: Apparently Tottenham do have some kind of buyback clause. I'm not sure entirely how that works, but Apparently, it does exist. Um, on the other hand, Liverpool, they certainly have a long path back to the stage, but they already look pretty keen on staying among Europe's elite now that they've finally been able to get back here. Uh, they already added 24-year-old midfielder Fabinho from Monaco for €39 million. Euros. Uh Naby Keita, of course, is on his way this summer, and they're also rumored to be in the, the mix for... Um, you know, Nabil Fakir and Allison. Um I think it's smart, honestly, for Liverpool to get out front of this in a lot of ways. One, you know, you, you already show to your fans and the rest of your players that you have this intent on continuing to maintain this level. Um, but the other thing is this is a World Cup summer and that kind of affects, you know, players moving and, um, you know, how quickly you're going to be able to get players integrated together. So um, this seems like a really smart move to me for Liverpool.
1: Oh, absolutely! It's a smart move, and the, you're right. They need to get out in front because they are tantalizingly close. And really, if if they could just put their league form together a little bit better, they could challenge for the Premier League next year. Mm. Certainly, uh, you know Salah alone is is an incredible talent, and they've they will have to to make some changes. They'll probably be looking for a new, a new starting goalkeeper. <laughs> certainly uh, but yeah i mean I, they're smart to get out in front of it because i think they realize and i think they need to say to their fans we are that close and making it to this final is is a message to not only england but to the rest to the rest of europe that they are they're very close they're a contending team and, and you know there there could be trophies going back to to anfield it's been it's been a while since a you know major trophy has has uh, dawned through the Shankly Gates and 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 uh, uh, back into Anfield they could be on the brink of you know another golden era uh in Liverpool
0: let's move from one reds to the other um a, a team certainly not sharing that same success of late um well at least recently uh certainly last season they did but um Toronto FC, uh, they now sit ninth in the MLS Eastern Conference after a 1-0 loss to FC Dallas last Friday. Uh, eight points out of that final playoff spot. Again, they still have a game in hand, but 10 points in 11 matches and only three wins, basically a third of the way through the MLS season, uh, is not a great look. Um, where are you in terms of the, the panic scale? I know there's there seems to be kind of a polarizing amount of opinions among TFC fans and certainly among TFC media in terms of um, how worried we should be about this team and whether they can climb back um, into the playoffs. We certainly expected from them at the start of the season.
1: I don't know that I would panic per se, but the situation obviously with each passing game that you don't pick up points that you don't pick up ground on the teams in front of you. And right now, you're looking not at, at Atlanta United or New York City FC. You're not looking at the top of the Eastern Conference table. You're looking at sixth mm-hmm. place. And that's right now what they have to be aiming for. And as you said, eight points out of sixth place. It's not insurmountable by any means, and certainly not for a team that is distalented. But the way things have gone and the way that circumstances have gone over the past two months, basically, you know, the, the Champions League has taken so much physically, mentally, emotionally out of this team. You have to wonder, will it get better? <clears throat> we keep waiting for the injury situation to get better for this team. Will it? Because history would dictate that as you go deeper into a season – and as the season grinds on, your injury situation, at best, stays the same, is more likely to get worse than mm-hmm. better. Yeah, you'll get players back into the lineup, but there will be other players going back out, and I, it's a bit of a revolving door. So I have to wonder whether they can overcome that, and certainly that loss to Dallas, that felt about as soul-crushing as it gets to drop the points at home where they have traditionally been so good. They emphasize not just picking up points at home, but collecting all three points on every occasion. Mm-hmm. And to control that game in the way that they did. I mean, Greg Vanny talked about having the ball for 75% of the game in Dallas's half of the field. He wasn't lying. They did. But they just couldn't find a way to score. And part of that comes down to the goalkeeping. Part of that comes down to just not capitalizing on your opportunities. This game felt like one where maybe it wasn't so much the injuries, maybe the Josie injury, but as far as other injuries go, you could maybe look at the, the, the situation in which the, the goal was scored against them. If you have Drew Moore back there, if you have a healthy Chris Mavinga, if you have Nick Hagland or, or Eric Zavalletta, I know Haglund came off the bench, but Zavaleta's back out mm-hmm. injured. And Vanny's trying to manage guys coming back into the lineup, as he did with Hagland. If you have your full complement of players out there, maybe that goal isn't scored. But it's just, it's just a situation now where they're plugging and they're grinding and they're trying to find a way to break through and get that goal. And then bang, it's in the back of their net. And you can see the emotional level, not droop, but you can see the questions starting to pop up in their head. Like, maybe this isn't going to happen for us. Maybe we can't get back in this. There's just, we've we've had to climb so many mountains. That's just not happening for us. And that was, it certainly didn't happen for them in that game. And it might not happen for them um, this season certainly the next month will be very telling.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on the next month in a little bit, but uh, certainly against FC Dallas, that early goal seemed to loom large, and it has throughout the season. Toronto FC have conceded six goals in the first 15 minutes of MLS matches this year, which is not a good stat to say the least. Um, it, it's hard to know exactly what's been causing this, um, but I would, v- I would venture to say probably, like you said, the fact that they haven't really had a consistent backline, and a lot of the times uh, to start games kind of it's been the back line kind of figuring itself out and uh, seeing who goes where and in that time you know they are playing against very good teams who will find uh, the the issues very quickly that they have with that back line um, but this you know being behind the the gun early seems to be creating problems for Toronto FC um, everywhere else right like they you know with their chance creation um, you know they're, they're creating these chances but if if you know that you know you don't need that goal, um, it's it's nil nil and a tie isn't great, but it's at least a point. Um, you know maybe you can you know not be as desperate and um, take things a little slower, and the other team will evidently be looking to to maybe score one themselves. But when you're behind like that, you you know you need a goal, and every missed chance feels like you know that was that was the chance. So um, you know how much has that issue with being scored on so early affected this team well
1: it's massive and greg Vanny mentioned it after the dallas game he said it's a source of pride or it was a source of pride for this team in 2017 to win the first 15 minutes of the game the first 15 minutes of halves in general just to be able to set themselves up to do what they want to do and find the best version of themselves, as, as Vanny is uh, one of his catchphrases, <laughs> it's huge because if you are conceding goals early in games, you're then forced to chase it, especially when you are behind in the standings and struggling to find wins. Now all of a sudden you have to chase the game and you put more emphasis on trying to get guys forward that sometimes you aren't necessarily paying as much attention to your Mm. back. And with the center back situation being the way that it is to have to push guys forward that early and have guys playing out of, out of position, it certainly sets them up in a bad way because as you said at nil, nil, it's not ideal, but you're not, you're not in a desperate situation. And that's the way that game felt. From from the moment that Dallas scored, it felt like there was real desperation in the air for TFC to find a leveler. And I'm not sure that that's the best way for this team to be emotionally and mentally approaching the game. I think they need to have certainly a very clear and bold mentality and need to push for goals. But when you... when it becomes desperate and you know Dallas scoring as well at that point they can sit guys mm-hmm. back and just try to bunker and not get scored on it makes it makes finding a breakthrough in terms of offensively scoring goals much much more difficult when you're behind the eight ball early
0: yeah, it does. And Greg Vanny has said this week that the team really wants to focus first, uh, even with the the lack of scoring recently. They want to focus first on their defense, which I, say, I think is the right policy. Um, certainly whenever Toronto have kind of needed... To, to win games. You look at last year's playoffs, you even look at the CONCACAF Champions League, some of those away games, and they will be going away from home uh, for a stretch coming up right now. They've kind of relied on that ugly ability to grind out games to, to win 1-0 or even 0-0, and those results are honestly as good as any right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, when you go on the road, I mean, they haven't. they obviously have not been able to get anything going mm. at home. And maybe going on the road might be the best thing for them because they can get away from everything that's going on around the city and the distractions and all of, all of those things. But they can also maybe come with that clear focus of instead of we have to go and win the game at home, now we're on the road, let's get a point. So they can put the focus more on the defensive side of the game because frankly they have to when you have players that are playing out of position guys who are playing hurt it's imperative that you keep things as simple as possible and keep that very very clear mandate of we have to do what we we have to do everything in our power to prevent the opposition from finding a goal here so let's just keep everything as simple and as smooth as we can, not get guys caught out of position and and not allowing guys to sneak in behind. They they have to be very, very structured, and they have to to be very uh, smart and simple in the approach to the defensive side of the game. And you know what happens when you do that? It's going to open doors for them at the other end of the field. They might be able to find a few goals if they're more defensively minded at first and then look forward at the uh, the offense moving forward
0: let's update that injury crisis for toronto fc um we'll go with the good news first then the bad news eric zavaleta um marky delgado and ashton morgan they could all play against columbus i, I feel like Zavalletta might be a little more Doubtful, but uh, sounds like Delgado and Morgan. Uh, there's a good chance they can play uh, non-injury related. But Alex Bono uh, will be returning from international duty as well, so he'll be available. Uh, also, Justin Morrow is training again. He won't be available for the Columbus game, but having him back soon uh, would definitely be important for Toronto FC. Now, the bad news uh, looks like Edgar Akeche uh, will be sidelined. Will be sidelined for a few weeks, and uh, of course, Altidore and more remain out injured. Um, I know. Toronto FC fans don't really, are, are, haven't really been a big fan of Agara Akeche since he's come in. He's been a little inconsistent, hasn't really um, fit the rest of the system. Now, uh, I would venture to say that there's been a ton of issues around him, and it's not necessarily him that's been the biggest problem, but I, I wonder how much of a miss this might be for Toronto right now because. Uh, He is one player who he can take those long shots. We know that. He's a big chance creator for Toronto FC. And they were kind of missing that against Dallas. They pushed everything wide. They didn't really have um, all that much in the middle going on. And, you know, there was a couple of times where Auro would play the ball to the top of the box. And uh, Bradley and and Liam Frazier, they aren't players who tend to shoot all that much. So um, not having that threat, Dallas could kind of sit back a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as far as a catch-aid goes, he, I think fans really need to take a step back and allow these guys the proper time they need to fully integrate into the team. And with the Champions League and the focus being on that in the early portion of the season, and now you have the injury concerns. And everything that's kind of adding up, it's been really, really difficult for Akeche to fully get himself acclimatized with the team. And I feel that once he does, I think fans will be really, really impressed with what they see. I think he's another chance creator in midfield. And certainly a player that TFC can look to in the future once some other players start to move on from from the club. Hmm. I, I, just, I, I would really caution fans to, to take a wait-and-see approach when it comes to a Akeche, and now with the injuries, I, he, you know, as we move into the summer months, we still haven't really, I don't think, seen what he can really do and what he can really provide for this club.
0: I agree, and this is something I certainly um, wouldn't put on all fans, of course. But um, I have noticed this season. Obviously, fans are, you know, in a heightened sense of of panic right now. But um, there there does seem to be a a tendency to kind of judge players very quickly. Um, and you know, like you said, it does take time for players to adjust. Even a guy like Greg Vanderveel, when he didn't turn out to be, you know, the Justin Morrow on the right wing. Uh, fans were going nuts and saying this was a bad signing when uh, evidently he's turned out to be pretty good. Uh, same with Ryan Telfer. His first couple of games with the club, um, fans weren't overly impressed by him, and then he has that game against Orlando. So, um, you know, having that... that- time to to give players time to integrate into the team obviously right now they need wins and um, so it it becomes a little more difficult to have that patience but um, I think it does remain an important thing to have you mentioned it uh, a bit earlier uh, about how you know after this upcoming month we'll know pretty much where toronto fc are and as you said a very important stretch uh coming up exclusively against eastern eastern conference opponents for the next five um so it's a huge chance for them to start climbing back into the playoff race um the first one of course comes against saturday against the columbus crew um and it's away from home and the crew they've been the best uh MLS home team in terms of picking up points so far this season. New York City, of course, are undefeated at home, so um, they're probably the best one overall, but Uh, The crew, they're going to be without Will Trapp and uh, Zach Steffen, who are out on international duty. Uh, Federico Iguain got a red card um, against SKC, and there's a good chance Christian Martinez gets suspended as well. He kind of ran after a guy and slapped him, which apparently you're not allowed to do. Um, (laughs) And then uh, meanwhile, uh, Jonathan Mensa and uh, Pedro Santos, uh, they've missed time with injury recently. So uh, Toronto FC could be looking in the mirror a little bit. Uh, on Saturday when they visit a, a battered and, and bruised uh, Columbus crew team, uh, how important is it, is it to get that road stand and you know, a, an important month against Eastern Conference opponents off with you know, at least a result? So you, you
1: have to beat Philly at, in Philly, and you have to beat D.C. I really think then you got to win one of those other three games. New York City's tough to play especially on that, that postage stamp at Yankee Stadium. Red Bulls are playing well. They've started to find really find form. So I think it's important, certainly. And just for the mentality of the club, it, it's been so inconsistent and it's been so difficult to uh, get any sort of positive momentum going. They absolutely have to do it now because – you know, Michael Bradley mentioned it after the game on Friday night against Dallas. The six-point games that we talk about, where the, the game against Orlando, that was, if you're going to win one of those two games against either Orlando or Dallas, Orlando was the one to get. But now they have to go and and get some, get some consistency going on the road, and they definitely have to win that one game against D.C. that's at home uh, on the 13th of June. But yeah, it's important to get off to a good start uh, to the month of June against Columbus on Saturday night.
0: And certainly teams have taken advantage of Toronto FC for having their priorities elsewhere and their injury situations. So uh, returning that favor to an Eastern conference opponent um, would be big for Toronto FC. Let's talk very quickly about the Canadian Premier league. We've kind of been updating listeners on the show um, as things continue to develop and, uh, the, the newest club that have been announced are, are Halifax. Um, they'll play at the Wanderers' Ground in, in Halifax. And, you know, an exciting launch. Um, Halifax doesn't really have another major sports team. Uh, obviously, the Mooseheads play on the QMJHL. But um, in terms of a major team, uh, this is their first. And um, definitely exciting. I, I love the logo. Um, can't wait to see the jerseys and all that other stuff. So um, an exciting launch for sure.
1: Yeah, I'm, 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 I really love what I see from the Halifax Wanderers. I, I, I really feel like there is a really, really solid chance in Halifax to be successful right out of the gate because, as you said, it's not a crowded sporting market. There really mm. is nothing there over the course of the summer months. You know, we talk about Toronto, places like Toronto – There are so many options and so many ways to spend your entertainment dollars in the city of Toronto. Well, you just don't have that, at least in terms of professional sports, in a place like Halifax. I think it was was huge that they're beating the CFL into that market, because I know the CFL is uh, sort of testing the waters with potential expansion to the Maritimes and Halifax being one of the potential destinations.
0: Yeah, for sure. There's certainly a soccer community there. Um, you know, they had they've had a very successful um semi-pro league there for for years, but there there hasn't really been a place for players from Nova Scotia um to go in terms of, you know, it's just not focused on as a soccer hotbed like Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. So, hopefully this will start to get um some of the young talent in Nova Scotia kind of a place to go and a platform to to maybe promote themselves to the national team. And that's the goal of this league um, really at, at the end of the day is to, to you know, continue to promote soccer in Canada throughout the country and, and benefit the national team. Um, let's move on to another national team in our crazy soccer story of the week. and um, This one's kind of crazy for a different reason than the usual shenanigans we cover on this segment um, just because it's so dumb. England international uh, Raheem Sterling recently turned up to training with a gun tattoo on his leg. I, I don't know my guns, but uh, my Fortnite experience tells me it's some kind of assault rifle. Um which has people for some reason calling for him to lose his place on the England squad. Um, Sterling actually has a good explanation for this tattoo. Not that he really needs to explain it too much. Uh First off, it's not even done yet, but basically it's a reference to his lifelong vow to never touch a gun after his father was murdered when he was two. Um, it's also on his right leg. So his shooting leg. Um, so some symbolism there. Um, You know, Sterling, he's been picked on for a while by the English press, it seems, for very nonsensical things like going out to breakfast after losing the Young Player of the Year award. Um, Seems a little ridiculous uh, how much this pretty non-offensive tattoo is getting in terms of attention.
1: The tattoo on the surface, uh, obviously the imagery is maybe a little bit insensitive. But uh, as you say, his, his reasoning for it, i don 't see any problem with that, and as far as losing his place in the England side going to the World Cup that's absolutely ridiculous. England needs to take its best best team mm. over to Russia in order to even have a chance and, and i mean it's debatable how much chance they they actually have uh, of winning the World Cup. He should be in that team he deserves to be in that team based on his results on the field, and something as silly as a tattoo should not keep him out of that team or any other team for that matter.
0: No, and I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, I haven't gotten a tattoo, but I'd imagine it would hurt a lot to, to kind of be playing soccer with that on your leg, uh, you know, kind of tender from just being put in. But you know, that's that's kind of a minor issue. Um, That brings us to the end of another edition of the Footy Talks podcast. Uh, Thanks again so much for joining us, Michael.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me.
0: And uh, next week on the show will be yet another special edition, our World Cup preview. Uh, We have a reasonably big guest booked for that one, so uh, stay tuned to find out who it will be. Uh, Basically two weeks now until the tournament kicks off, so a lot to get excited about. There's nothing better than a World Cup summer. Have a good week, everyone.